0: I encourage you to make your way over to Matthew chapter number twenty eight, where we're gonna we're gonna be today. Um, if you're if you're new to Salem Chapel, um, let me just say welcome. We are so grateful that you chose to come to be a part of this and to worship today. A couple of quick things. So my name is Aaron and I serve as the executive pastor here along with an absolutely amazing team that I'm been so grateful for. So we have been here this week like Mark's four months since our family um, has arrived here at the invitation of this church and so grateful and all that is represented. Uh, But there is one thing that has been most predominant this weekend that I have to thank the Lord for because we are from Southwest Florida where it's hot all the time. And we woke up yesterday to the most glorious thing that I've experienced in years, which was cool weather. It was so awesome. Some of you may be like, man, we're going into winter, and like, I'm telling you, the Lord's blessings are seen in a variety of ways, and when it's not a thousand degrees, that is one of those as well. So, so grateful for that. And hey, we're going to jump back into what is week five of this series, which we have entitled Ecclesia. if you've seen that, if you've been here. And I just want to remind you that that, that Ekklesia, is a, it's a Greek word that means the called out ones. And ecclesia is where we would get the English word for church. So wherever in your Bible you see the word church, it's the Greek word ecclesia. And then specifically, what we really have been doing is asking, so as the church, what are the values that define what the church is to be about? What are we supposed to be uh, doing? Because a value, if it's, if it's what's most important to us, then it determines what we're to be about, what we're to do, how we're to go after something. Uh, and that, that caused me to be a little bit curious this week. I was, um, I was actually, on Friday, I was, I was working a little bit on, uh, on preparing for this morning, and I thought, man, I wonder if I text just one of my kids um, and, and I ask them, what defines us and what, we, what do we value as a family? Like, what answer could I possibly get? So I texted my middle daughter, who's over at Western Carolina at school, like she was in the middle of chemistry class. I gave her no context, and I said, hey, kid, just give me some words. What, what defines our family? If you're a parent, you know the terrifying moments as you're waiting for. You see the little bubbles come up? You're like, I don't know what she's going to say. Or can I use it on a Sunday morning, which was even, was even more terrifying? Um, she said this supportive, I thought that was good. Goofy, I hope that was referring to her mother, not me. Real, loving, reliable, easygoing, and my rock oh, okay, well, that, that's, that's helpful. I can use all the things. I didn't, I didn't edit that at all, just so you know. And then, again, no context, so I texted her back, and I said, that's awesome. So what do you think, just give me some words that we, that would you say we, we value, or are our family's values? And she said these three words, honesty, faithfulness, and reliability. Now, pretty much all of her life, she's been a pastor's kid, so I was really hoping Jesus was gonna make the top three, but nonetheless, we got honesty, faithfulness, and reliability. So I'm good with that. Um, why would I want to know that? Or why did I even think about texting her? It's, it's as I was giving thought to the idea of our values. It's because what defines us and what we value intrinsically is those things that are not only important to our family, but they actually become the principles that begin to guide how our family functions, how we, how we operate. And, and if you think about values, you know it, it, like for us as a family, it just comes from years of common language and common culture. Because if I simply stated our family's values, if I said, you know, these are, these are our values, this is what we're going to embrace, but we didn't live them out, they really wouldn't be our values. They would just be some words. But there is something about the, the longevity of us being in that particular Culture as a family that defines what we value. And that is the exact same thing that's true for our church. Because our values, then, as we've been talking about them, are who we are and then what we do as a church. Now, here's what's important for us to to make sure that we understand those values aren't just whatever we want them to be, they actually have to be what the Word of God describes. That's the same reason that you've heard us say that the values that we talk about as a church and as a body. And I pray could be the same values that we could say are my individual, my personal values, what I'm going to embrace for myself. So I want to just share with you real quick, just remind us of where we've been. What are the values? Some that we've talked about so far, some that we haven't talked about yet as a church. And we want to be a people who are God-glorifying. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Gospel-centered, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that that represents is what drives us. and We want to be loving one another in all that we do, like a radical love, a love for one another that transcends all of the things that become barriers to the way that we can love one another. We want to love outside of the four walls of this place. We want to be a people, which we're going to talk about today, that are just disciple making in all that we do. And then we want to be a people that are missionally driven. And the reason that we're talking about these frameworks is because then they begin to to shape the way that we operate as we go about fulfilling the mission, which John talked about in the very first week of the series. So let me just draw you back there for a moment. I want to remind you what even the mission of our church is we put it in different places and signs and things like that but this is why we exist as a church to glorify God by making and mobilizing disciples that represent the gospel to every man, every woman, and every child. Let me just draw that down a little bit because if the supreme mission, right, the activity that we're to be about as a church, the thing that we're to be engaged in, the thing that we're to be doing is to be on mission, uh, making disciples, then then by default, we have to be disciple-making in all that we do. It's just the natural inclination of the mission that God has given us. We have to look at the fact that Jesus as well declared, commanded that we be a people on mission hope you've made your way to Matthew 28 before I read the text. Can I give you just some quick context here? Again, we believe in preaching verse by verse through God's word, Um, and so we'll do that today, although we haven't looked at the entire book of Matthew. We do want to look at verses 16 through the end of the chapter, and so the context is this. You probably are very familiar with this passage, but Jesus has just arrived in Galilee from Jerusalem. And so Galilee, Galilee, where he had started his ministry, he's going to gather his disciples on the mountain. The resurrection has already occurred. The ascension of Jesus has not already, has not happened yet. And there's been that moment that's already happened around the fire where Jesus cooks the guys breakfast and uh, and he talks to Peter about feeding his sheep. That whole thing um, has already taken place. And then all of a sudden, um, Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to give them what is known as the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is this imperative, this thing that we are to do that is going to be the thing that deploys the church throughout the world. And it's, it's the, like the final words of Jesus. All that my ministry has represented now culminates right now in this point. And so that's why any church that is faithful to Jesus Christ must have its mission circled around the Great Commission. We can't be disconnected from what Jesus has called us to do. So with that being the context, let's look at these four, uh, five short verses real quick. I'm going to be reading in verse uh, 16 to start. It says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Can we just pray together, and then we're going to jump into this text? Father, you are so good to us. God, as we just sang about, we can trust you. I want to build my life upon you. There is no other person but you, no other name that saves. God, I loved what Grace said, that we we cannot add anything to you in our worship, but we are a people that are wholly dependent on you. And God, we need the very words of life that you have given us. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts and our eyes. God, would you remove distractions that we may be experiencing this morning? Would you help us to hear from you this morning in your word what you'd have for us? And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, When we start to just think or even give some thought to the enormity of the mission that God has called the church to, or specifically... Because it's not just, when we talk about the mission of the church, because we're the called out ones, right? That, that Greek word, ecclesia, that means it's an individual mission for us as well. So we have been individually called to the mission of disciple making. And I think at times that can just feel a little bit like overwhelming. Begin to wonder, like, how, how is it that I could be on mission? How is my life, my one single solitary life in the grand scheme of all human history going to make a difference? how am I going to go into work tomorrow or sit with my kids? And, and how am I going to be able to be disciple-making in all that I do? We live in a crazy culture. Sometimes with the culture that surrounds us, we just, we just wonder, how can my words, which you're just going to be perhaps scoffed and mocked at, have, have any authority? And I'm glad you asked that question because because when we think about it, the reason that we can be a people who are disciple-making in all we do is because Jesus has given us the authority he has commanded and he has accomplished or will accomplish it. Look at verse 18. Jesus says this, and, <clears throat> and Jesus came to them and said, no, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want you to understand this. Jesus not only is going to command it, but he's going to accomplish it. So Jesus comes along and he says, now listen, all authority is mine. But he doesn't just say that at the end of the life because he has demonstrated this throughout his ministry. So he goes along in his ministry and he's healing people. And the the lame walk and the blind see. Miracles happen. Jesus walks on water. 5,000 are fed. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gets done teaching all that he's gonna teach and the Pharisees look at him and he says, you know what he teaches as one who has great authority. Even the the religious people of the day had recognized that there was authority. And then we get to the end and the resurrection has occurred. And it's like one gigantic exclamation point on the end of it all. Because if you ever doubted that Jesus has a full authority to command and accomplish it, it's like the resurrection is just like, all right, I'm not dead. Like that means I get to have complete authority. And man, that speaks into our lives in, in significant ways. Because if we start to think about the authority that Jesus has to both command and accomplish um, what he has set for us to do, that means that we, as God's people, have a few options, a few things that we know we can press into. We can listen to him, we can respond, and we can obey because we know this that God is going to do what? He is going to use all of his people to accomplish his mission and that he promises he is going to be the one that accomplishes it. That's good news for us. I love the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, where he is talking about what it means that he is the bread of life. And he says this, starting in verse 37, should be on the screen. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And there is just an accomplishment in that first phrase. All that the Father gives me, they will come to me. It will be done. We don't have to wonder if the mission that Jesus has sent us on is in some way going to be accomplished. They'll they'll come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So all that the Father gives me, It's already accomplished. All that are now mine, those who are believers in Christ, I'm not going to lose those, but what does he say? I'm going to raise them up on the last day. There's a reality of eternity that we can trust because Jesus is the one by his authority that is accomplishing the mission. For this will be the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus commands it because Jesus accomplishes it. And that's good news. That's why as we look at this text, I want to kind of give you the overarching idea that would be helpful, I think, for us to hold on to, and it's this. Because of the command and the authority of Jesus to make disciples of all nations, then we must be committed to disciple-making in all that we do. So before I really dive in and, and give you just a couple of things on this text, can I, make, can I make one statement that, man, I just really feel like the Lord was pressing on my, uh, my preparation time. Because I think that it's super easy as we think about these values, and especially disciple making in all we do, to come in, and we feel overwhelmed, and we feel burdened, and here's what we're doing. We're just trying to pay the bills, and we're trying to do the laundry, and we're trying to raise our kids, and we're trying to work full time, and, and all of a sudden we come in and we say, you know what? We hear this message that says, we need to be disciple making in all we do, and it feels like one more task that we must accomplish, and I get that. But the whole reason that I even introduced once again the idea of our values and how they shape what we're to be about is that I want you to understand that, that, that they shape all aspects of our life. And I'm not talking about an add-on I'm t- to a, a busy life that's that, that sometimes more than we can handle, it feels like. But I want our values to just become intrinsic to what we already do that they are just something that we embrace and hold on to, and they are lived out not as an add-on but a part of what you do every day. So that's why we're going to spend the rest of our, our time as we explore this text, and I want to discover why is it that one of the values that we hold so dearly, we'll talk about at nauseum at Salem Chapel, is to be disciple-making in all we do. Like, why is that a priority? How does it intersect with my life? What does that mean Me, why should we be a people committed to disciple making in all we do? I want to answer those questions through just a couple of points um, today. So, let me give you this first reason, and we'll see where that comes from the text. The first reason is this it's a priority to commit, it's a priority to commit um, to because Jesus says, disciple making means this we go to all people and all places. Don't trust me, look at God's word, verse 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you look at this text, um, here's what we find. Jesus is going to give us a a total of four commands um, that are in this text. But there's a main imperative. There's a main uh, thing that we're supposed to hold on to, and it's this. It's make disciples. So the other commands that we're going to talk about in this text, they really just represent how it is that we're to make disciples. What what it looks like to make disciples. But I want you just to pause for a moment and and just begin to to think about the idea of of making disciples when we talk about the totality of going to all people in all places. Because even that phrase should start to help us understand, wait a minute, that's an all-encompassing, like it's a comprehensive task, something that we're called to obey that is the totality of our life i put it this way, discipleship is a way of life. It's a way of life. That's the totality that's represented in what Jesus calls us to. And if that's true, then we have to ask a question. We have to know what it is that a disciple, what a, what a disciple is rather. Such an important question for us to push down on. Let me just help us understand this because the root meaning of that phrase in there, make disciples, in the original language refers to this, believing and learning. See, Jesus, when he's speaking here, he wasn't just referencing believers, like go in and make converts, make believers. It wasn't just referencing learners, those who are growing. He's saying, no, go and make disciples. And and what it does is it represents those who trust Christ and those who follow him and those who continue to learn to obey Jesus Christ. There's a a totality in in the entire statement that he makes. And see, that begins to shape our view of what it means to make disciples. Because when we understand what it means to make disciples, then it frames the rest of this verse because he says this. He says, go and baptize. To go and to baptize. Um, now, for space and time this morning, I don't, I don't have a lot of time really to talk about baptism other than I just want to say this. Um, it is the first step in obedience for someone who has trusted Christ as their, as their Savior. It's that first, it's, that first, um, it's, it's representative, it's the declarative of our new life in Christ. But I do want to highlight for just a moment this word go. Because when Jesus says go, the word has the sense of this, as you go, as you go. Like, in other words, as we live the life that, that we've been given, we're to be about making disciples who trust Christ and obey Christ. I think it's easy a lot of times for us just to, just to believe that making disciples is just the task of evangelism, sharing the gospel for salvation. And there's, there's truth in that. There is absolute truth in that. That is part of what it means to make disciples. But it, it misses the way that we're to go around making disciples. I love what Johnny said just a couple of weeks ago. When, when we were talking about the fact that there's no secular or sacred, right? Our life as followers of Jesus Christ, it's not compartmentalized. It's not, man, I'm, I think I'll make some disciples when I, when I have some space in my schedule. But rather, as we go about all of the life that the Lord has laid before us, man, we're to be about the mission of disciple-making. That's what our life's to look like. So let me draw down and draw out a few things that I... I hope at least will help make my point here a little bit. Because if we start to understand what Jesus is saying here, then when we talk about making disciples to go to all people and all places, mean it has to start with us. It has to start with me. My life has to be one of being a disciple. It's a command to every single one of us who say that we follow Jesus Christ. So what does this first step in discipleship look like? Well, a disciple cannot make disciples unless you're becoming a disciple. Discipleship begins by by making sure that in all we do, we are growing as Christ followers, learning, obeying. Listen to me. When God saved you and he gloriously rescued you from your sin, it's not like all of a sudden you were spiritually mature. I wish that were true, right? So salvation, salvation, the, the justification that we experience is an instantaneous moment. That's a good thing. But the way that we're transformed over the entirety of lives, what we call progressive sanctification, well, man, that, that takes our whole life. That has incredible implications when we start to, to think about that because here's why. You can't use your perceived immaturity as an excuse not to make disciples. I mean, I just came to faith I can't make disciples. I don't know much about the Bible. I I can't can't make disciples. I don't don't know what to say. I, I, I can't make disciples. Making disciples is just not for the mature Christian, but it's for all of us. I mean, press that point. Just look back at verse 17. So the 11 disciples are there, and what does it say? Some of them doubted. Some of them doubted. So just think about this with me for a moment. If you're Jesus, and you have been with guys that have witnessed everything that they have witnessed, including the fact that you were clearly dead and crucified, and now you're no longer dead, and you're about to give them the grand mission by which you want them to go out, would you hope that some of them would still not go, "Eh, not sure, not sure? Like, I don't know what they doubted. I have no idea. Like, maybe they were like, I don't even know if this is Jesus, right? Was the resurrection real? Have I lost my mind? Like, I I have no idea. But here's the cool thing about this, and it should have implications for us as well. Because the fact that they doubted didn't stop Jesus from saying, hey, you guys, like, yeah, you, you, you go make disciples. That's encouraging to me. (laughs) I'll just be honest, the way that that intersects with my life when I'm like, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm just having moments of doubt." Yeah, they did too. So, so go make disciples. Here's what I want you to know. The qualifications we possess to make disciples is just that we are disciples. And that's all that you have to be qualified. Like, that's it. You're a disciple. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now listen. Does that scare you because you just have questions that you can't answer? Like I'm sure you do. And you may never have every answer that you need that's going to make you feel as though you were qualified. You have things you don't fully understand. I have things that I don't fully understand. I've been a believer for a long time, been on this earth for 45 years. I was hoping that there are points when I would have it all figured out, but I don't have it all figured out. And if you're honest, you don't have it all figured out as well, right? Right? It doesn't release me from disciple-making. So, if I can't use those things as excuses, if Jesus has basically put the kibosh on it, then where does it mean that it starts for each and every one of us? Well, quite simply, it means that we have to to believe and obey what Jesus said. I mean, we have to believe it and obey it. The disciple-making in all that we do is really actually what he meant in Matthew chapter 28 we got to believe that He actually has the, the power and authority, that He's the one that commands it, and He's the one that's going to accomplish it. And then we have to believe that we're actually supposed to go, or as we go, that we're supposed to be about making disciples. So how do we go? Well, man, as a, as a, as a growing disciple of Jesus Christ, here's what I want you to know. It's the immediate sphere of influence around us is where we go. So yes... Yes and amen. Let us be about a people who go to all nations. Let us be on the task of missions. Absolutely. I want to do that. But listen, I just want you to understand something. All nations is not just somewhere else. It's also here. Otherwise, it wouldn't be all nations. So sometimes the places that we, that we need to start are just the, the, with the people and in the places that God has put us. And that means that first circle of discipleship becomes our, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. Moms and dads of little ones or teenagers, can I talk to you for just a moment? The first sphere of influence that you have is the family that God has sovereignly placed in your home. Like That's where it starts. Or the co-worker that sits next to you that eventually says, Why do you bother to go to church? Why do you bother to believe in a God who is a fairy tale? And as the fear wells up inside of us, just know that God in his providence has intersected with your life in such a way that you have an opportunity to go and make disciples. What a cool thing that is. Wherever God has placed you, whoever God has placed you with, that's where we begin to go. And here's what I want you to understand. There is power. There is power in the collective mantle as we each pick up and go on mission. You know why? Because, yes, there are some that are called to go to Eastern Europe, and there are some that are called to go to China, and there are some that are called to South America. I was thinking this morning, I have an old friend that this morning is in the Amazon of Brazil, and he is training pastors, and that's a good and glorious thing. But for some of us, we just need to actually say, I'm going to make disciples, and I'm going to do it in my household. And as we begin to do that, there is a collective power that literally begins to change lives, and it begins to change the culture. All of us on mission, and I just want you to think about that. If everybody in this room just lived on mission, in the places where we lived, worked, and played, how much of a difference are we going to make in the city of Winston-Salem? Significant. Significant. Illustrate this point a little bit for you. I love everything to do with space and rockets, and maybe I'm a nerd, but I'll embrace that. That's fine. Uh, took my son, and we got to go to um, Kennedy Space Center a lot, and it was like advertisement, like the space shuttle's on display, like you got to see that thing if you haven't seen it up close, but that's, that's not the point of the illustration. The point is, is that a couple of years ago, when a movie came out called Hidden Figures, um, I was, I was, I mean, I couldn't wait to watch this film, because this film, what it did was it talked about um, the impact that these three African-American had at NASA during the early days of the space program. So if you haven't seen the movie, um, what's, in, what's incredible about this is that they are math geniuses, like crazy human calculators in calculus, like things I can't even wrap my head around. Amazing. And they're at work in the 1960s at NASA, segregation, racism, and they're a woman. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And and the movie parlays some of that out for us. It's astonishing. And they're in this room, and what they're doing is they're working on all of the calculations that eventually will take the the, the first phase of spaceflight, the Mercury rockets, into space so that John Glenn could orbit the Earth and will be the catalyst for what takes us to the moon. Here's the point of that story. That, unless this film came out, and as much as Aaron loves space, I might have never heard about their stories unless it had been made into a major Hollywood motion picture, and probably you wouldn't have either. Yet, the collective power of these three women played a significant role in the glory that was that rocket as it launched itself in the first man into space. And see the connection for us is this is that whatever part you are playing, when you feel like, man, I'm just discipling, <laughs> I'm just discipling my kids right now. Like that's all I can handle. I just want to encourage you. You may never be known on the grand stage of history, but your contributions are eternal. Second reason I want to go quick is this. It's a priority to commit to because Jesus says that disciple-making means this. we got to teach what Christ commands. Look at verse 20. It says this, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So perhaps it should seem obvious that by its very definition, a church should teach what Christ commands. And I wish that were true. <laughs> I really do. But we can find churches that are consumed with self-help teaching and churches that teach how God's primary purpose is to bring you financial success and just some better health and and make make your great and grand American dreams come true. Isn't that pleasurable? Man, there's even churches that preach some pretty noble stuff like how to be a good person. Let's just preach morality. If we just have a bunch of good people, then we're going to see good things happen. Okay, but here's the problem because this is what's lacking. Sometimes what we don't preach on is the reality of sin, the holiness of God, the grace of the gospel which transforms and transcends all of that stuff. And you may not live your best life now, but I do know this, that if you've been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ and the gospel, you will. Even the best churches in the world are going to fall short if we preach the gospel for salvation now, and we fail to teach all that Jesus commands. So we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. That's why in verse 20, when Jesus emphasizes that disciple-making is not just going and seeing people come to faith, which is great and it's, and it's super necessary, it's really just, it's just the, the first step in becoming a disciple because we're actually called to a life of obedience, which is only possible if we know what Jesus commands in the first place. Now, we know this, but can I just say it for those of you who maybe you're in this room today and you just haven't professed Christ yet as your personal Savior. You're still just here and you're like, man, I I was trying to figure this out. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Let me just tell you this. Obeying the commands of Jesus does not make you right with God. Like, our salvation is not based on if we think we've done more good than bad. One sin separates us from God. There's not a cosmic scale, right? I get to the end, I'm like, yeah, I think I've done more good. Man, I hope that's, I hope that's how this works out. Like, if that's your hope, you're, <laughs> you're already in deep weeds. No one comes to the Father but, my, but by me, Jesus says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. At least any man should boast, Right? God alone saves, but here's what I want you to know. Our salvation does result in a growing obedience. Results. There's a way that that plays itself out in our life. And we have to be uh, in the church today, a church that calls people back to obedience, that is motivated by the gospel, but nonetheless that understands that we have to be in obedience to what Christ commands. And we only know that as we open the Word of God so why do we need to grow in obedience to everything that Christ commands? Why would I say to do that this morning? Like, what's the big deal? See, the answer is this. It's not because Jesus wants to inhibit your joy. He doesn't want to inhibit your joy. He actually is trying to increase it. I don't know if you get this, but we, we are pleasure and joy seekers like you do things in your life because they bring you joy. And if it brings you pain, you typically don't do it. It's not a wrong thing in a lot of ways. Okay, it can go off the rails. Trust me, it can go off the rails. We see that every single day. But here's the thing that's not a wrong thing. That's the way that God designed it, that we would seek the ultimate pleasure, the ultimate joy in Him. So when Christ here says, man, go and teach um, all that I've commanded, drawing people back to the idea that we need to be in obedience to the things that he has commanded, it's because it brings him glory, but it's also for our good. All of a sudden, we begin to understand that the commands of Jesus aren't some burden I have to bear, but they're expression of real freedom, it says in Galatians. So I want to know what Christ commands. I want to see what his word says because it is literally the best thing for me and the greatest joy that I can experience in life. The greatest joy. So how do I experience the joy that Jesus wants me to have? We just have to start with what Jesus said. To know what Christ commands allows us to see what a lot of times our flesh is blind to. And a lot of times, like that's why the word of God in James is called a mirror. It's this metaphor that that allows us to go, wait a minute, this this is what my life as a believer should now look like. And and it it doesn't line up with that. And so maybe there's something that I need to do to make some corrections and changes in that. Because as we do that, here's what happens. It begins to keep our lives from the entanglements of sin that will appear to bring joy, but in the end always bring about grief, sorrow, and steal your joy. Listen, I don't know what you may be struggling with this morning. I don't know what you got up with. And in the, you or your family are in the midst of something right now. But in a room this size, I can guarantee you that you are. Some of us are. And we are convinced that as we walk down the... The, the path of sin, that those things are going to provide for us the greatest joy that we could possibly experience. Otherwise, we wouldn't do them. Like, you, you wouldn't go, Well, yeah, I'm, I'm going, let me go about destroying my life. We, we wouldn't do that if that's where we thought it would end. I Ain't mean, crazy, are we? But we're deceived. Because in the moment, we actually believe that will suck the life out of us, will bring us the most life in the moment. God's word highlights it. I, um, I, was, I was doing some prep, finishing some prep on, uh, on Friday, and I got done and I went up to exercise on the elliptical. So there's a visual for y'all. <laughs> Just think about that. It's every bit as bad as you can imagine, but that's, a, that's another topic. So, uh, out our second floor home, and so I look out this window at the street while I'm, you know, doing my thing. And here's what I discovered: I moved from Florida, where we have big gators. Y'all have big spiders here, like big, ugly spiders. Matter of fact, I got off the treadmill and called a bug company. I'm like, I ain't, ain't doing this because outside my window is this massive spider. I don't even know what that thing was, but it was nasty. And it had this gigantic web. And so I'm exercising away. And next thing you know, a bug comes along and gets trapped in the middle of the web. And it was like I was watching National Geographic Live. Like this big old spider crawls. Crawl. I mean, I still kind of like, just thinking about it. This spider crawls up there. Man, I don't know what they do, but he spun that little bug around. And next thing you know, like that thing is just entombed inside that web. That was amazing. And and it was all bound up tight, but but inside I could see this. The bug was still alive, and it was moving its little feet, and it was trying to get out of that thing, and it just hit me. It's a great, it's a great metaphor for really the realities of the way that sin becomes, comes along and, and entangles us and binds us up, and we're kicking, and all of a sudden, we can't get away, and I thought, if there's such a thing in bug world, like if somebody would have said, hey, there's a web that you can't see very well, but I want to tell you about it. And if the bug would have obeyed, he wouldn't have gotten to a place where he was captured, bound, and devoured. Discipleship is about this. It's about obeying what Jesus commands of us because at the end of the day, and let me just say it once more, they're not a burden to bear, but they're the expressions of real freedom. Freedom. <laughs> They're freedom that we have in Christ. They're the best thing for me, the greatest joy that I can experience in life. But here's where that collides because you just have to believe that. I used to wonder, I'm gonna give you this for free, what difference does it really make like spending some time in the Word every day? Like every day? Every day? I mean, if I miss... Now listen, I don't want to become legalistic, but here's what I know. Time in the Word always translates to a greater joy because of the obedience that Christ shows me that I need to follow, always. And if you're in the midst right now in this room of some deep-seated sin and you're like, I don't even know how to get out, you're probably, if I'm going to guess, not in His Word be honest, you're not. I'm not. Like I know what that's like. Oh, but there's joy. Do you feel that? There's great joy. There's great pleasure in freedom that we have in Christ. Let me just make a, a, a real quick turn here because I want to ask more, one more question as we kind of draw our time to a, a close. When we think about discipleship, When we think about what it means to be a growing disciple that makes disciples, is there any way that I can know what it means to be a a growing disciple? Now, I'm an XP, an executive pastor. Like, I like numbers and things like that. Like, that's just part of how God made me. So, I asked this question what are some metrics? Like, what are some things that help just bring definition to what it means to be a disciple? And so, one of the things that that uh that johnny and the staff has just worked on is like can, there are some metrics so to speak i hate to use that word but maybe that's a good word that we can put around what it means or characteristics is probably a better word. characteristics of a growing disciple and i'm going to give you these real quick they're not everything that we could say about what it means to be a disciple but it's a good representation Because here's what I want you to know. You're not going to just hear this today, but it's going to become part of our common language because it's part of our values, because it's part of what we do, because it's going to be part of what shapes everything that we do as a church. So if you ask yourself, what are some of the things that I can measure what it looks like to be a disciple with? Well, let me give you the five. Here they are. How about a growing commitment to the Word? That's disciples' direction. Man, I just spent some time talking about that. But are we actually committed? Do you find yourself growing in commitment to the Word? How about commitment to worship? That's the totality of all of our lives. It's not just what we do here on a Sunday morning when the band's out. But worship is response to God in the totality of our lives. We live our lives. We are all worshipers. Whether we believe that or not, we all worship something. Every day, you choose what you're going to worship, God or something else. God or something else. So our whole life is devoted to what it means to be committed to worship. Am I growing in that? Am I committed to prayer? That's the disciples' dialogue. Like, is there, is there a reality of my growing commitment that understands that the God of the universe, the one that created me from nothing, wants to have a conversation with me and you? Commitment to community. That we... Do not forsake the gathering of the saints together. That we come into this place on Sunday mornings, that we go throughout the week in life groups, not so we can check the box off and do it, but so that we can say, man, that's one of the ways that God sanctifies us. That's one of the ways he changes us. Now, I love my life group. I was so impressed. With this uh, not We didn't meet this week, but the week before I got there and, and we were talking and my goodness, they were just like, boom, all over each other. In good ways. Well, the Word of God says this, and the Word says this, and the Word says this. I'm like, I can just leave. I don't even have to do anything. That sharpens one another. Man, commitment to community is one of the ways that we live out discipleship. And then commitment to mission, which we'll talk about next week, but it's our passion to be on mission outside of the four walls of this church. And man, maybe those will just help you give some definition. I I don't know. print those off, write those. You can find them on the website. Put them in your Bible. Hang them in the refrigerator. And just ask yourself, Lord, would you, would you grow me in these areas? Are you living them out perfectly? No. <laughs> Neither am I. I'm not. But man, God, would you grow us in these things?